want you to meet a couple of my very favorite people who are completely fictitious except in the confines of my head. But I want to share them with you. They're really great people. There they are. Oh, you ready? Go back there. Okay, there you go. There's Bob and Barb. Bob and Barb met at work in 1976. Both of them went to the University of Michigan. Two year, Bob was two years before Barb. And so they never met. They at first met in 1976 when they were in a big firm in Detroit. They both were engineers. And so they run in the same circles. None of them, neither of them had, had ever married. They came from large families, so a lot of their needs for companionships were met by meeting with the brothers and sisters, and as kids came along to those families, they had plenty of, of relationships, a lot of uh, nieces and nephews, and that was all kind of met for them that way. Singleness for them was, was not an issue. They were just fine with it. In fact, the two of them were friends for about 20 years before something sparked. In fact, they were close enough as friends so that they, they, when, you, when the time came at the end of the year for Christmas cards, they felt like it was a yes to the question, do, is, is sending them a form letter appropriate or do we need to go all the way and write something more than just that? And they were close enough so that they would have to write something else in those Christmas cards. They were acquaintances, but they weren't really, really close. And then one fateful day, something happened. That status changed. They were assigned for the first time in this firm to work on a project together for six months. Well, all fine and good, and they're working in their group, and it got late one night, and, and Bob said to Barb, hey, you want to grab something to eat? Little did he know, those were his last words. <laughs> he, was, he was a dead duck from then on. He had, all of a sudden, his eyes were open, and he fell head over heels in love with Barb. And Barb, too, thought that Bob was the greatest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> they fell in love. And even though they had kind of befriended each other for almost 20 years, and they were both in their 50s, they decided that they wanted to have a relationship together. So they, had, they, they started this relationship together. Over a six-month dating period, and, and then a three-month engagement period, which was just a whirlwind, their love was just, everyone around you would know that these two are in love. They, they look like that picture all the time. <laughs> they had a huge wedding. I mean, just, I mean, they had a lot of money because they were single for so long. They had this massive wedding. <laughs> did I just say that children eat up all your money? Yes, I did, didn't I? <laughs> they went to Jamaica for their month-long honeymoon. They were, this was a story tale. These two were in love. And even months after their wedding, You'd see them at Dunn Brothers and they barely could drink their coffee because they're holding each other's hands and it's just sickening. They're in love <laughs> with one another. Later in life, they were in love like that. And you come up to Bob one day and you're talking with Bob and he says, I got something to tell you. He says, what, what? He says, Barb and I, we invented something. Well, you did. Well, what's that? 
we invented this, this thing, this, this thing that, that we just feel alive inside. And I, 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 th I think we're going to call it love. And you kind of scratch your head and you say, what? It says, no, we invented this thing. Barb and I have this relationship with one another that it just, I, I, I feel all gushy inside. <laughs> and I just want to spend all my time with her. And I just, I just like her. I want to squeeze the stuffing out of her. We invented this. And you're thinking, now, it is a great story. This is a great story. And I love the fact that big wedding, cool thing, the carriage coming up to put Princess Di to shame, cool, very nice. The Jamaica thing, great. The Dumb Brothers thing, a little over the top, but I can live with it. But you're telling me you invented love? You're inventing love here? Okay, that's it. No, that, hold it. Now, what do you do when somebody tells you that they invented something that is really a standard that has been around forever and ever and ever. How do, you, how do you correct somebody who's got most of it right, but they, they're, they're arrogant enough to think that they did it? Let's take a look at a passage of Scripture this morning. Um, we're in a series. We're, we're back to our series now in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 17. So if you want to flip open your Bible to Acts chapter 17, we're going to take a look at how Paul addressed this very issue not about love, but about something else with people who were very close to understanding the standard but had invented it of their own accord. Uh, if you're new to us, we've been in the book of Acts for about a year and a quarter. We'll be done by the end of July as the aim. And uh, then we'll maybe just start over again. I don't know. Make life a lot easier. Just recycle. These guys aren't really listening anyway. So, <clears throat> Oh, you are. I'm just kidding. So, Arr. Uh, Acts chapter 17, what has happened is Paul has just left two places. I don't have a map this week, but Paul has just left Thessalonica and then Berea. And he was on his way going all the way to Athens. And he goes first and some people are going to meet up with him. And that's, that's what's going on. Let's take a look at this. We're just going to kind of walk through this passage and, and see how Paul deals with this kind of issue with some people as they're struggling with um, inventing something that's a standard. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16, middle of, the, middle of the chapter. While Paul was waiting for them, that's his companions, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So just stop there, there for a second. Paul this guy who's a traditional Jew in every way, shape, or form. He, he just, he, everything about him is centered around Judaism. And then he becomes a Christian. So Paul just transforms that allegiance now to Jesus. This guy's the ultimate Jesus freak. Okay, he just loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's just, he's one of my heroes. And, and here you see Paul, and he's walking through this city. He's looking around, and all he sees are these pagan idols. He sees them everywhere. And he's thinking, he's thinking, look at all these pagan idols. So what does he do? He starts to teach in the synagogues, and he also teaches anywhere he can. He goes in the marketplace. So that's, how he's, that's how he's dealing with it. Okay, verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, remember we're in Greece now, 
What is that humming sound? You got that figured out? Is that me? Is that outside? Projector. Hmm. Smash it with a. <laughs> um, a group of philosophers come up to him. Remember, we're in Greece, and, 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 and they're, they're very much into this. If you're familiar with anything of ancient Greek history, that's what they, they were about, was a lot of uh, Plato and, and uh, Socrates and all those guys. They were uh, very famous philosophers. This is the birthplace of it. So they began to dispute with him, because that's what you do if you're a philosopher. You dispute with people. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, so here's the deal. That's, that's what's going on in Greece, and that's, these are the normal folk that walk the streets. And so they're the ones who are asking him uh, all this question, well, what's going on? So, verse 19, they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Arab... Ah, I can never say this. Hamlet taught me how to say it too. Where are you, Hamlet? Areopagus. Say it again. What he said. Areopagus. From here on known as the A place because it appears two more times in this. Areopagus. Are, I should have wrote that down. Are, like Ari. Apo, guess. Means son of Ari or something. Areopagus where they said to him. Now, the Areopagus was a place where it was kind of a court, but it also was a place where you could come and, and give different viewpoints. They just love to listen to your viewpoints. And also would be a place where they handled court, official court business. So they brought him there, where they said to him, may we, know, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Then it says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spend their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It sounds like if you just go to a coffee shop and you just sit there. I go to this one Panera Bread out in St. Louis Park and every morning, every morning that I go out there, so it must be like every morning, there's this group of retired guys, there's about 10 of them and they sit in this corner and they philosophize over everything. I, I don't know if anything's right in the world and they haven't fixed anything yet, but it's, it's all happening in that corner and that's what this is kind of happening on a, on a bigger, bigger, bigger scale. Okay. Paul's been asked, point blank, what are you teaching? Uh, note to self, that's a question if you don't want a sermon, you don't ask the Apostle Paul. But he's going to give you one. Now remember, remember his context. He went throughout the city, he went throughout the city and he saw these idols and something inside of him must have been very angry about that. And you think the first thing out of his mouth would be, you rotten pagan people. But that's not what he says. Look at verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the, of the A place, see, Areopagus, there we go, and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He compliments them for the pagan idol. Oh man, you, you dudes, you're, you're religious. That's just great. Good for you. What? For as I walked around and looked carefully at, and I'm sure there's another word that would want to come out of his mouth, but he doesn't. He says, at your objects of worship, I even found an altar to this ins inscription, 
to an unknown God. And what, what the deal was is here is you had all these gods in Greece and you'd, you'd label them out and Zeus and Mars and yada yada. You'd label all the, the gods out. And just so you don't offend anybody in case you forgot them, you'd label one to an unknown God. That one was to cover your hind end just in case you forgot one. Do you see? What the, they're, they're completely opposed to the viewpoint of Paul. And what Paul does is he starts with common ground and he says, I'm going to tell you about that God. It's ingenious. I'm going to tell you about now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. Let me just give you a, a little observation I have is that too often we do not spend enough time in allowing people just to talk and then finding common ground. I looked for this quote and I couldn't find who the author of it is. I think it's Jerry Bridges. I think Jerry Bridges is the author of this particular uh, instance. He was on an airplane he, uh, and he was sitting next to a man who was visibly drunk. He had a big flask with him and he kept taking a, a hit off the flask and he kept offering Jerry Bridges a drink. And Jerry Bridges said, no thank you. And the guy offered it to him again. And he said, no, no, thank you. And the third time he offered it to him, and, and Jerry said, no, I don't, I don't care for any thank you. And the man looked to him in his stupor and said, you must think I'm a horrible human being. And Jerry Bridges looked back at him and said, no, I, I think you're very generous. <laughs> Do you see that? You're looking for, you're looking for something that you can communicate with people on. G.K. Chesterton has said that every man who's going into a brothel, he's knocking on the door of the brothel, is actually looking for God to answer. That's profound. Pascal said, within each one of us there is a God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. The issue this morning, I don't care where you're at on your spiritual journey, everyone in this room is religious. You do have a God. The question is, what is the God? Paul finds these gods out there, and he says, let me tell you about this. When he finds a connection point that would, that would match with where they're at in their life, he says, let me tell you about that. And so he goes on. He's going to correct them a little bit. Actually, he's going to correct them a lot. Wants to tell them a couple things about what they already know, kind of, but they've gotten wrong. Verse 24 says, The God, the God, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So just stop right there. So he's painting this picture of this unknown God. He says, let me tell you about the unknown God. I know about the unknown God. Actually, the unknown God is not just one you put off in the corner that's to, to, to cover your, your, your hind end in case you missed a God. Actually, that God is the real God. And, and he's the God who, who made everything. And he doesn't live in your, your, your pagan temples or, or any temple for that matter. And he doesn't, he's not served by your hands. You don't, you don't, he's not up there waiting for you to do something. You can do whatever you want. And he's not, he's not dependent upon you. 
Then he goes on and says, From one man, verse 26, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. So God's in like complete control. He's sovereign over even time and where you live and the whole thing. Whoa, this has got to be a radical picture to them because they just kind of have it off as this little God because the other ones are, they know, but this one they're not so sure about. Why did he do this? Verse 27, he did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are, off, we are his offspring. He quotes Grecian philosophy, poetry. He doesn't quote the Bible. There's nowhere in there he quotes the Bible. Because Why? Because they don't know the Bible. They don't know anything about the Old Testament. He quotes some of their poetry. He carries on. What does the unknown God want from us? Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, this creator God, this one who is the ultimate good, this one who, who made everything set times and places, and the reason for it is he wanted people to find them. In the past, he's overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What, is he, what does this unknown God want? He wants me to turn from this to him. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So Paul, that's the end of his little speech here. And he's basically told them that there's a God. He's not the God you're thinking of when you think of God. This is the ultimate God. This is the sovereign God. This is the creator God. This is the one who controls events. He wants you to come to him, but you've got to turn from these pagan things because there is an upcoming judgment and everyone will be judged by someone, doesn't name his name, who will judge you. And he, you know that this is true because this guy was raised from the dead. That's the entirety of the story that they get. That's it. Look at verse 32. When they, this crowd, heard about the resurrection of the dead, that was it, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. That's key. They believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. Now, now, it says they became followers of Paul. I can follow that. But then it says, and they believed. In what? What did they believe? Paul gave them a message. The message was, there is this God. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's the creator of everything. He determines events. And he has appointed a person who was raised from the dead who will judge you. Oh, that's a nice message. I want to believe that. There Where's the message of the Where's the message of the person who died and was raised again? The reason that he did that was so that all of your sins and everything you've ever done can be forgiven. Where's the message? Where's that? How can they believe? Where is it? It's the end of verse 32. It says, Some sneered, but others said, 
We want to hear more on this. Now, that's huge. Who gets, this, who gets the message of what Christianity is all about? Not those who sneer. Those who sneer walk away thinking the message of Christianity is about judgment. Those who say, you know, you're nuts. I want to hear more about this. I'm intrigued by this. They get the story of how Jesus Christ came to die for sinners among whom they are. But those who sneer and walk away, they, don't, they get the worst part of the message. There is a God and he's going to judge you. Now, let me summarize what we, what we have going here. Summary of what we, we can take away. Or what, what I, in education, as an eighth grade math teacher, used to call SWWC. Anybody? SWWC? What? So what? Who cares? Right? <laughs> Great. What does this have to do with us? Six things. First thing. Hate sin. Love sinners. There is absolutely no way you could look at a guy who's trying to give you a flask of whiskey if you don't want any and other than utter hatred than if you truly loved that man. There's no way Paul who looked at people who had pagan idols and it made him die inside thinking here's these people who are prostrating themselves before idols Instead of the true God, you know what he feels more than anger? He feels sorrow. Because you're wasting your life. Do you feel like that? Or do you just want to just hate sinners? Do you want to hate people? Because you can do that. There's enough churches around that preach what I call a gospel of hate. You don't believe me? Just turn on the television. You can get out to a station and they'll just start ripping on people. Hate sin, but love, love sinners. Read, oh, I don't know, maybe Jesus on this. <laughs> Jesus was a master of hating sin, but embracing prostitutes. That is radical thinking, and that's what Paul does here. He doesn't just go off and give them a 10-point, here's what's wrong with you guys, all this. He doesn't say that. In fact, he picks up on something and says, this is what you really need to believe in is something you're already touching which is kind of our second thing. Look for how you and others are trying to fill yourselves with false gods. You want to be involved in the ministry of other people? Look for things in their life that they're trying to fill. Paul does it. says, here's the unknown God. Guess what? It won't ever fill you. But this God will. Yeah, look. That career, you know, you're going to retire someday from that career and it won't fill you. You know that child that you think you just had? Or you did just have? <laughs> it, it, they're great, but they're not going to fill you. They're not going to fill you. That boyfriend or that girlfriend you just got, <gasps> I know it feels all tingly inside, but they're not going to fill you. They're not going to fill you. When you try to make them your God, you're just going to be disappointed. Third thing, all of life's experiences can and should be used to better understand and proclaim Jesus. Paul is walking around looking at pagan idols and in, and, and in his thinking he says, this will preach. All of life is that way. All of life is theology. God is involved in everything. 
Look for those opportunities in people's lives. Fourth thing, meet people where they are at. Let me say that again. Meet people where they are at. Not where you want them to come to. That is huge. Meet people where they are at. Loving them exactly where they are and loving them too much to leave them there. Too often, man, we get this club mentality that you just got to come in here and you got to be this way in order to be accepted by me. No, you love them exactly where they are at. And you love them too much to leave them there. Now, I was, I was uh, uh, challenged. I'm, I'm a huge Napoleon Dynamite fan. And uh, we saw the movie in January, and, 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 and the boys and I went and saw it, and we walked out of thinking, that is the stupidest movie we've ever seen in our entire life. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> but then my oldest son, David, hadn't seen the movie yet, so we rented it, and I watched it with him, and I laughed hysterically. It's all about the second time. So those of you who, and I bought the movie. So uh, uh, ever since I saw that movie, I thought to myself, I'm going to show a video clip. Is there possibly a redeeming five minutes in that video? Not that it's a bad movie. It's, it's fine. But is there anything of any substance in this movie? Hang on with me. This might seem like a stretch. I think it hits it downtown, but I'm biased because I thought of it. <laughs> Why does Pedro win? If you follow the movie, Pedro, he wins the election. You know, there's that scene in the end where he's got that cake, Presidente Pedro, you know, from his, from his, his Spanish family. Why does he win? Well, I'll just give uh, you one easy hint. It was not the fantastic speech he gave. It's the dance, right? It's the dance. Now, Napoleon is an interesting duck, to say the least. But when he does the dance thing, what does he do? He performs something that will have some semblance of connection with his audience. So much so that they all stand up except for uh, the cheerleader girl and her, her boyfriend. Uh, who's got the best facial expressions in the movie, I think. And that, everybody else gives him a standing ovation. In fact, if you watch carefully, got the dudes in the front there high-five each other. Like, Napoleon's a geek, but that was cool. There's so, yes. It's a cult, man. It's a cult. Just... At least you got a sweet bike. <laughs> That's true. But I digress. The, the connection point that he made there is taking something that they would enjoy and he performs it for them. So much so that even though they're still kind of on the outside of the, of the, of the class, there's enough connection that they're no longer completely ostracized. People play tetherball at the end with, with Napoleon Dynamite. There, there's, you see this scene of everybody kind of getting connected again in the end of the movie. 
Start where people are at. Make connections that way. Paul was a genius of it. This is in, incredibly ingenious. Fifth thing, encourage people no matter where they're at in their spiritual journey as long as you see them progressing. These dudes who said, hey, you know what? We'd like to hear more about this. Paul doesn't say, well, you're not a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. You don't have the, the 10 points of, of theology exactly right yet. No way. He says, no, that's great. You've got a spark of an interest. Let's go with it. Encourage people no matter where they're at in their spiritual journey as long as you see them progressing. And the last one's a hard one. However, know that only those who respond to the message of God actually get it. And that goes for everybody in this room too. You can read your Bible and not respond. You can listen to me. You can listen to any sermon. You can sing praise songs. You can take communion. You can do all that stuff. But if you don't respond to the person of Jesus Christ through all of that, you're just creating an unknown God. Jesus will not make himself clear to you if you don't respond to him. And you can see that clearly here in the passage. The ones who get it are those who say, we want to hear more. My heart is open. I want you to meet Tom and Tammy. <laughs> Tom and Tammy are my second favorite fictitious people in my head. They are actually the great nephew and great niece of Bob and Barb. They're 20 years old each. And they, in some family gatherings, have met Bob and Barb together. And they see what they have, and they think, oh, that is just so, so cool. That is so cool that they have that kind of love, and especially that late in life. Isn't that neat? They were single all their lives until that, and now they have this love, and they think that is so fantastic. And so at one of these big family gatherings where, where, they, where they come together, uh, uh, Bob actually brings Tammy, and, and, and these two meet. Tammy and Tom meet. And, and, and they start to think to themselves, could we, have, could we have what Bob and Barb have? Could we have that? We really, really want what Barb and Bob have. And so they decide, you know what? We both really want what Bob and Barb have. And so why don't we date? And so they date. And they fall in love with the idea of falling in love. They want what Bob and Barb have, but they don't really care that Tim is with Tammy. In fact, Tim could be with Tina, and Tammy could be with Tom, or Tim, or Tony, or whoever his name is, Tom. Uh, doesn't really matter. Tom and Tammy are more about, I want what Bob and Barb have. Now, to Bob and Barb, it's about Bob and Barb. I mean, Barb wouldn't go with Bill and, 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 and Bob, i got to make sure I get my names right here. Bob wouldn't, wouldn't go with Betty. No, no, it's about Barb and Bill. 
You know, a guy who's Myers-Briggs' ENFP should never attempt these things. <laughs> Barb is with Bob, and Bob is with Barb. It's actually afraid I'd do like two guys there, and then it'd really be. <laughs> now, what's the difference? Both spend time together. Both want this same feeling. What's the difference? To push, to push Bob and Barb's analogy a different way, what's the difference? The difference is love. Do they really have love? What is love? Love is ultimately trust. Do I really trust you enough to open my whole life to you and just you and you just to me? Is it that kind of love? Have you ever or are you now responding to the message of Jesus, to the person of Jesus in loving trust? Or are you playing the religious game? And Christianity could just as well be pagan religion. Does it matter? Do you really want to be in love or are you, in, are you infatuated with the idea of being in love? Let's pray together. Jesus, I want to thank you for the cross that hangs over my right shoulder. I want to thank you for the message of it. Thank you, Christ, that you came into this world while we were still sinners. You came into this world to die for us. Lord, and the bottom line comes down to how are we responding to you? Are we responding to you with more questions? Are we responding with you with an open heart? Or are we just can't wait to get out of here, even this physical place, and go and have lunch? Are, where's our heart and mind? Jesus, I pray that just as gracious as you were to come and die for us, would you be that gracious to move even in the people in this room, myself included, and open our hearts to you? Would we fall in love with you all over again? Lord, for some of us, that's for the very first time. For some of us, we're just like these people who had unknown gods. We might have come in here and we have any idea that there's a God, capital G, and that there was Christ who came and died for me. And, and all, this is all foreign. And we may have just more questions. God, would you open our hearts up to that point? For others of us in this room, we've been followers of you so long that, that marriage now feels like a, a mundane thing. The spark is gone. Jesus, would you by your grace, would you by your grace shake us up so that love that's within us that you can just stir, would you cause that to happen so that we will once again fall in love with you? Lord, and for those of us who are in this room and we're playing a religious game, God, would you open our hearts to see that? Would we see it? And would it cause us to shudder, realizing we haven't been worshiping the true God, we've been worshiping an unknown God. Open our hearts, God, as we come to the table now and as we worship you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.